The scripture reading for today is 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome, as I said, to uh, Pentecost Sunday. This is the day when we remember the advent of the church in the world, the pouring out of the Spirit, when God chose to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. In fact, it was 50 days after Easter Sunday, and the people of God were gathered, but unsure about what the next step would be. They had just witnessed a salvation play out before their eyes that was nothing like what they expected. They had been hoping for a Messiah to come and deliver them militarily, a Messiah to come and reestablish the throne of David to throw off their enemies, and they were still grappling with this Messiah who had in fact come and been crucified and not defended himself, not even spoken up a word, a single word of defense, gone to his slaughter like a lamb, quietly. And then, of course, they were overjoyed three days later when he rose from the grave and dwelt among them as the risen Christ. But still, even in his resurrected state, Jesus did not do those things that smacked of revolution, according to the way that our world defines it. He went about and eat eating fish, ate fish with his disciples. He showed them his scars. He told them to teach the way that he had taught them. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back to his father in heaven. So by the time Pentecost Sunday comes around, 10 days later after this ascension of Jesus, the followers of Jesus are wondering exactly what is next. They don't know what the next step might be. They're simply doing what they know to do, which is to gather for worship on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, on Pentecost Sunday. Now, they knew that this was Pentecost Sunday. This is a Jewish high feast day that dates back to the time of Moses and the Exodus. 
It was a time for celebrating and commemorating the giving of the law. Jews observed the high feast day of Pentecost to remember when God gave them the law at Sinai. So this was a day when God gave his people the next steps, as it were. So perhaps there was some expectation in their number that this would be the day when they received the next steps from God, when they were told what they might do. And then, yes, in an unexpected way, no less, the next step from God came rushing into their worship gathering like a wind and overtook them with the Holy Spirit of God. God poured out his spirit on all flesh such that the humanity that Jesus had forged in his incarnation now flooded the whole earth. This new humanity, this new way of being, this new way of living, this new creation now flooded the earth by way of the Spirit of God. And for this small number, this group of 120 or so, this people of faith, this community of faith, it filled them with this new life of Christ and they began to manifest the life of Christ. They began to teach and proclaim in the way that Jesus had taught and proclaimed in his life. They were astonished by this outpouring of power, by this life that overtook them and began to demonstrate itself in them. And seeking to make sense of this, the Apostle Peter stood up in their midst and quoted from the prophet Joel and spoke of a time when God had promised this very thing, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh such that anyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. That's the Pentecost reality. That is the reality in which we now still presently live. The humanity of Christ has been poured out on all flesh such that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. The humanity and life of Christ, the life of God in Christ, is at hand for the whole world. We all are invited to participate and live in this person of Jesus, to become one with him, to live out his life among us. This is true today. It was true, of course, in the first century. This is the reality that led to the eruption of thousands of new communities of faith in the first century. This is the air that those new churches breathed. It was the lifeblood that coursed through their veins. It is the reality of a risen Christ manifesting himself in real people. This was not just about believing new things or having a paradigm shift of the mind. This was a real and living person demonstrating his reality in flesh and blood, in real people, in real communities. And so all those churches that formed in the first century and every church that has formed since has been rooted in this reality, stemming from this reality, feeding on this reality. We've been spending our time here on Sundays looking at the ways in which this manifested in the first century Corinthian church, and specifically how it manifested in the Apostle Paul who planted that Corinthian church, planted many other churches in the first century, how it was that the life of Jesus began to overtake Paul and manifest in Paul such that Paul no longer lived, but now Christ lived in him.
And Paul founded the church in Corinth on this reality. It was Christ alive in people that brought the church of Corinth together, that first formed that church. And we've been reading a letter, 2 Corinthians, that Paul is now writing back to this Corinthian church some years later, seeking to reform that church in Christ. The church had first formed in Christ, but now these people, the Corinthians, they've begun to wander off into silly Corinthian myths. They've begun to wonder if perhaps there is a different sort of salvation available to them than this salvation that simply unites them to Christ and grants them friendship with God, they've begun to wonder if perhaps there's a sort of salvation that might lead to more pleasant outcomes in their lives. Is there a sort of salvation available from God that would put us on top of the social power pyramid? Is there a salvation available from God that would make us into somebodies or give us a life that is more enjoyable a life that's more meaningful? Would God take us out of our present circumstances and elevate us to some better circumstance? And Paul is writing to say no. He's saying you've wandered, you've forgotten. God's salvation, the Christ that he sends, is not about getting better outcomes. His salvation is not about giving better outcomes to self-serving people. The salvation that God is actually offering in Christ is one where he invites self-serving people to die and be remade in him. The salvation that God is offering in Christ is a death and resurrection for you, not the elevation of your former decaying self. And so Paul is writing to remind the Corinthians of what the true salvation is, of what the true gospel is, that it's not a doling out of Norman Rockwell living. And we're reading now near the end of Paul's letter. We come now close to the end of Paul's letter. We're in the final chapter today where he's trying to remind the Corinthians of this salvation. He's pleading with them to wake up. And remember who they are in Christ. Remember what it is to be united to Christ, to see his life begin to manifest in you. And Paul is saying here in this section, as we look at it today, that he wants the Corinthians to wake up to this before he travels to them again for a third time. He would like for them to be alive in Christ in their hearts and minds when he comes to see them when he passes through Corinth next. So he writes this in the opening of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. He says, this is the third time I am coming to you. He's referring now to a future event where he'll be visiting for a third time. He says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Okay, Paul says, I've been warning you for some time now. I've been warning those of you who are straying, those of you who are wandering off into these Corinthian myths. I've been warning you to wake back up to this reality in Christ When I return to you, if you have not yet reawakened, I will have no choice but to confront you, but to correct you, but to discipline you. I cannot let this folly go on simmering in the church forever, leading people astray, 
this must be confronted. It must be dealt with. And so he's pleading and hoping that the Corinthians will deal with it before he arrives. And yet he expects, seems here, that this sort of confrontation is coming. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. See, the Corinthians have mistaken to this point Paul's gentleness for a sign that he will not confront them. For a sign that he will not take them to task that he will not correct them, that he will not discipline them. Paul is saying, no, no, no. I am gentle because Christ is gentle. I am weak because Christ is weak. But make no mistake, Christ is alive and real and active. And there is no getting away from that. His gentleness, his meekness, his patience does not change the reality that he is real and he is present and his person is ever crucifying your flesh and will ever be crucifying your flesh. Confrontation is coming. To live in Christ means that a cross will be yours to carry. It means that your flesh will face its demise. There is no way around this. Don't mistake the meekness and gentleness of Christ or me as his minister for an unwillingness to confront you. So Paul would like very much for the Corinthians to confront themselves before he arrives. To begin this work of correction and discipline. To reawaken to who Christ is before he gets there. He's saying in essence there's no need to wait for me. He says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Okay, you see what Paul is doing here. He's doubling down on the gospel. Paul believes based on his own encounter and experience with Christ, that Jesus is alive and real, that there is a true Savior who has been given to humanity and that this is an active Savior who is at work in people. He believes that so much that he is not convinced that it depends on him as a minister of the gospel to lead others into the way of Christ. He is convinced that Christ is in them. That Christ will, in fact, lead them into his life. He's doubling down on this. He's saying, I am going to depend on this reality. Therefore, your life in Christ does not depend on me arriving there and correcting you and disciplining you. Your walking in Christ does not depend on your leaders reminding you of who he is and what is before you and this new life that you have in him. No, you actually have new life in him. This is not some hype drummed up by those who stand before you. This is real and in you and active in you. Therefore, you who are Christians can repent. 
You who are Christians can turn from these silly myths. You can reawaken to Christ. Paul is appealing to the spirit of Christ that he knows to be in the Corinthians. He's speaking to that spirit in them, charging them to wake up to him. And Paul is hopeful here. He's hopeful that indeed the Corinthians will reawaken at some point. And he knows that that reawakening does not depend on them coming around to trusting him. That they won't have to actually begin to respect him as their leader before they are able to reawaken in Christ. Some leaders get caught up into that vanity Some leaders can go about thinking that until people respect me and follow me, they have no chance of reawakening to Christ. That's folly. Christ is in people. There is a priesthood of believers. By faith, we can reawaken to the gospel. We are not dependent on the leaders before us. We have true access, each one of us, to God, our Father, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that even if you never wind up respecting me, you can walk in newness of life. He says that starting in verse 6. I hope you will find out that we, that's the ministers, have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul's saying, even if you think that I, Paul, or my fellow ministers in Christ have not met this test, even if you think that we're not legitimate ministers of the gospel, even if you discount us or disrespect us, even if you never come to that point of believing that we are legitimate— it does not preclude you from reawakening to Christ in you. You can reject us as leaders, he says. You can think us nothing. We are unconcerned with what you think of us. We only want you to reawaken to Christ in you. Only want you to rediscover the glory of friendship with God. Paul knows that if the people start hearing Christ again, it won't much matter what they think of him. And so he closes this section by saying, for we are glad when we think, when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul wants the Corinthians to test themselves, to examine themselves, to not have to depend on him. Let me ask all of you, is self-testing and self-examination a regular part of your Christian life? And if so, what are the parameters or the measures that you use in that self-examination? How do you go about examining yourself, testing yourself? I actually think in our number, 
in our particular congregation, perhaps in most congregations in our day, self-examination is common. I don't think that we struggle to examine ourselves. I think we often examine ourselves. We often test ourselves. The trouble is the sort of test that we apply. When we go about testing ourselves, we do not apply the sort of test that Paul speaks of here. Because when we go about examining ourselves, testing ourselves, we want nothing to do with a test concerned with whether Christ is in us. There's nothing in that test for us. We very much prefer tests that offer us something to build an independent identity out of. We very much prefer tests that can measure our progress, measure how we are doing as Christians, not whether Christ is in us. And so we administer tests to ourselves that essentially ask the question, Am I swimming in more holiness today than I was yesterday or a year ago? Do I look more like Jesus now than I did when I was first beginning this faith journey? These are the tests that we most typically apply to ourselves. And there's a big problem with that. And that is that those sorts of tests are rigged. Because the people who draft those tests are corrupt. And they draft those tests to produce an outcome that they have in mind before they ever begin. I'm speaking, of course, of all of us. We are the corrupt drafters of those moral progress tests. And when we go about testing ourselves in that way, testing how we're doing as Christians, whether we are progressing and improving as Christians, it is very much like a six-year-old drafting a spelling test for themselves. Some of you have six-year-olds you might know what this looks like. When a six-year-old drafts a spelling test for herself, she tests herself exclusively on what she already knows. Cat. C-A-T. Dog. D-O-G. Nailed it. Our testing of ourselves is that Ridiculous. We test ourselves on those fruits of the Spirit that we have already come to know. But there are vast oceans of holiness that we have never conceived, and the depths of these oceans cannot be conceived from above. They can only be known when you are drowning in them. 
And by the way, people who are drowning aren't testing depths. Our testing of how we're doing in our progress in the life of Christ is dubious. It's ridiculous. They're rigged. The test that Paul calls us to here, calls the Corinthians to, and by extension, calls all Christians to, has nothing to do with testing moral progress. Paul's test is concerned with one question only. Is Christ in you? This is the test that he calls Christians to examine themselves regarding, examine themselves regarding. See, because Paul knows that if Christ is in you, the jig is up. If Christ is in you, he is a real and active Savior who will work it out. If he starts it, he'll finish it. It's already over. So how is it that we go about testing whether Christ is in us? How do you go about examining yourselves regarding that question? Well, this test is very much unlike any other kind of test. Because every other kind of test requires that you come up with the answer. But in this test, is Christ within you? The answer is freely given and freely proclaimed. Paul proclaims the answer to the test to the Corinthians in the same breath that he asks the question, do you not know that Christ is in you, he says. The Apostle Peter, to those first Christians at Pentecost, proclaims the answer freely to them. God has poured out his Spirit on all flesh, such that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. Can I tell you the only way to fail this test is not to take it? The only way to fail this test is to bury your head in the sand, jam your fingers into your ears, and pretend for all you are worth that the Pentecost reality is not at hand. It is to fight with everything in you to pretend that Christ has not been given freely. To fight with everything in you to pretend that the Spirit has not been poured out. The only way to fail this test is to perpetuate a lie. The true answer, the way and the truth and the life has been given freely. Christ is at hand for all people. Take this test. Answer honestly. And your answer must be yes. This is the test of Paul. The only way to fail the test 
is to refuse to take it. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians. Stop pretending. Stop burying your heads in the sand. Do you not know that Christ is in you? Accept reality and live forever. Let's pray. Father, many of us find ourselves routinely resisting reality, routinely pretending as though there were something we must accomplish, as though you have not come all the way to us in Christ, as though there were some separation remaining between God and humanity. Many of us persevere in that delusion for stretches of time, try to work our way to you, hang our relationship with you on what it is that we are succeeding in or failing in. We thank you for the all-consuming reality of your grace to us. Father, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see Christ in us, Christ for us, Christ beside us, Christ all around us, Christ dwelling among us. Break down the lies the suppression of reality, the suppression of the truth. Destroy our fictions of independence. Grant us joy in what is real. Amen.